ChatGPT is like one model of a car. Uh, there are other cars and there's definitely lots of different engines that are around. Hello and welcome to Clinical Changemakers, the podcast that explores vital lessons in healthcare leadership, innovation and so much more. I'm your host, Dr. Jono. Today on the show, we have Dr. Nigam Shah. Dr. Nigam Shah is a medically trained doctor and professor of medicine at Stanford. He is also the chief data scientist for Stanford Healthcare, where he focuses on artificial intelligence and data science. Dr. Shah is an inventor and has an extensive academic published background and is the co-founder of three companies. So let's begin. Dr. Nigam Shah, welcome to the podcast. Well, good to be here, Jono. Now, before we jump into your area of expertise in AI, I would love for us to spend a little bit of time to find out more about your background, where you grew up, and how you found your way into healthcare. Sure. Uh, it's, uh, you know, in hindsight, it sounds like a great decision, but it's a you know, series of lucky events along the way, like most journeys. I grew up in uh, India, a, a few years in Africa, actually, as a child uh, in Zambia for three years. And finished med school, and I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon, and I had it all figured out. And then we have a family friend who sort of convinced me that maybe I should try my hand at a research career. And, you know, if I don't like it, like, what do I have to lose? I can always come back and be an orthopedic surgeon, which he categorized as a glorified carpenter. And I was like, well, you know, he has a point. Uh, so I applied, got into a bunch of places, and I was studying the usual, you know, molecular medicine, muscle physiology, the kind of stuff that doctors, you know, understand. And that's when I read about the Human Genome Project and the use of computers to understand biology. And I was like, wouldn't it be nice if we could do that in medicine? And I convinced my uh, PhD committee. I was at Penn State University in Pennsylvania, and they let me kind of switch my project and focus all on uh, applications of, uh, at that time, called reasoning systems. Today, they would be called AI for the purpose of understanding biology. And when I finished... Uh, everyone on my committee said, folks like you who have an MD and do this goofy reasoning stuff in AI, I'll go to Stanford, so you should go there. And so I came here in 2005 as a postdoc and never left. When you reflect on where you grew up in, in medical school, do you think there were any sort of inklings that you might head in this type of direction? Oh, none whatsoever. I didn't even know how to type when I came to the US. My first term paper was handwritten. Wow, that's quite a story. So obviously you're involved in the field of AI quite early. How has the story evolved? Absolutely. So as of November 2022, everybody has heard about AI. <laughs> um, when I did my thesis project, which was 2005, uh, it was a much smaller field and I thought I was at the cutting edge. But when I came to Stanford, I learned that the first supercomputer for AI in medicine was at, on Stanford campus in the 1980s called Sumex AIM. And so it turns out that there's always has been a small community of clinician scientists going back all the way to the 70s who have been passionate about the application of computers to improve clinical care and uh, patient outcomes. So with that in mind and IT tools in healthcare being around for a while, many front line healthcare staff are really frustrated that it doesn't seem like those tools make things any easier. Why is that? So that's a great question. Um, IT, at least in the past 10 years, has become synonymous with uh, basically Epic and connecting computer systems to one another 
and the endless help tickets and login messes and so on. But the application of computation is much beyond just IT. And the community that, I'm, that we're talking about, going all the way back to the 70s, is about using algorithms and data in order to make better medical decisions. And it's good to make that distinction because obviously you need IT, you, know, you need the pipes to be connected, so to speak, uh, in order for the cool stuff to happen. But I think the application of algorithms, AI, data science, you know, pick your favorite buzzword, is different and, and a little bit after IT. IT is hard because in most institutions, it is layered on to their physical infrastructure and their business processes. Like when EHRs, uh, so our CIO, uh, Dr. Mike Pfeffer, makes an important distinction between digitization and being electronic. So what we've done in electronic health records and a lot of business processes is that we've taken things we used to do in pencil and paper and now do the exact same things with a computer. So that's making things electronic. But we're not rethinking how do we do things in a new way if we were rethinking the process from the ground up, given that we have digital equipment at our disposal. So I think we'll see that transition. And for the new, uh, the, the early career folks listening, uh, there is a lot of hope. Everybody gets it that the current uh, sort of use of technology is suboptimal. And hopefully by the time people arrive, uh, at, you know, start their careers, uh, there'll be this realization that how do we rethink what we're doing in the light of available digital technologies? I appreciate that distinction. And I'd love to take that one step further with just from the IT lens for a moment. Um, you mentioned Epic and, and they're obviously pretty well known, but it does seem like there are not that many new uh, companies or, or applications in that space that are perhaps challenging these areas. Uh, I know some of the big tech companies, Google and other, others, have, have attempted in the past. Why do you think that space has been difficult to crack? So, I mean, electronic health records are a system of record, as in they have a legal use, they're used for billing as well. And anytime you have a piece of software that is your system of record, your primary work management system, it's really hard to like rip it out and replace it with something else. And so the two dominant players, at least in the U.S., Epic and Cerner, tend to hold on to their majority market share. But a little known fact is that most uh, health systems, Epic, the EHR, or Cerner, the EHR, is one of about a thousand different IT systems. At Stanford, we have about 1,300. And so the opportunity is now to figure out a way to interconnect all of these things, all of these different IT systems in a seamless manner and imagine new ways of doing things. So would this be where concepts like interoperability and standards come into play such that we can share information more accurately and efficiently? Mm -hmm. So interoperability, as typically talked about, is usually about one EHR system to another EHR system. It is not about your EHR system to the other 999 IT systems in your own health system. And that's an important distinction because in the general uh, discourse that you would encounter at a informatics conference or you know one of the one of the health informatics events, 
interoperability is about me being able to send a copy of a medical record or a portion of it to you practicing in Australia or wherever. That is interoperability or state to state or one provider to another. It is not about making sure that the wireless blood cuff monitor that is being used is connecting to the EHR correctly. And it's important to recognize this distinction because the debates about interoperability have very little to do with technology problems. They're all about incentive problems. Today, my health system cannot share EHR data or will not share EHR data with another health system, not because they cannot technologically, it's because there's no incentive to do it right. So I often say for people sort of just arriving in the field, don't fall for the fact, don't fall for the belief that uh, uh, healthcare has a technology problem in interoperability. Healthcare has an incentive problem in interoperability. So if you choose problems where the incentives are aligned, you can have the most fun. Does that sort of speak to policies in perhaps at the state or federal level that could enhance this connection? Oh, 100%. I think there's a nice piece of work uh, by a group that analyzed uh, EHR notes at Stanford, or not Stanford, some uh, US hospital, and a place in Australia. And the same EHR system, Epic in both cases. And what they found were the Australian notes were like a third of the size. And the doctor's happiness with the EHR was much higher. It's the same piece of software. <laughs> so you have to conclude that it is something about the environment and the manner in which it has to be used that is the cause of all of the agony we typically hear about. So absolutely, it boils down to what does the local regulations and incentive structures of the health system require that you document how much, how long, how often that dictate the level of agony of physician feels with using the EHR. So just coming back to the comment about interoperability, so would it be fair to use a term like intraoperability if you're talking about the connections between applications within a health system? I love that word. Uh, I think there's a new buzzword to be coined and you might have claimed one. (laughs) Now, one topic I know you've worked on is about how to understand patient data over time. Now, at first, um, to the audience, this might sound really obvious. But often data is collected in very uh, discreet and disjointed ways, such that this isn't always the way that we view it. So I wondered, Nigam, would you be able to elaborate on this concept a bit further? Absolutely. So if we put technology aside for a second, and when you, when as a physician you encounter uh, a patient, or as you as a human go to a physician, the conversation typically begins with what brings you here today? How did it start? When did it start? What happened before that? Has it ever happened in the past? And so on. So mentally, we're we're talking about the story of how we got to now. And so when we think of data, we should be thinking of that story. And I find it most useful to conceptualize that story of how we got to now as a timeline where you put, you know, whatever marker you want for whenever something of consequence happened, a symptom began, or you know, a, a drug was prescribed or a test was done or an X-ray was taken or whatnot. And that sort of arranges whatever is being talked about, that patient journey into a chronology of a sequence of events. And that worldview, I think that way of thinking about data aligns much more naturally 
with the way we elicit that information, the way we think about that information, the way we would like to communicate it to the next person. But in the computing side of the world, when you say data, people think of tables, they might think of large hard drives with pictures or text documents. And that I think is a very narrow and a fragmented view of what's out there on a human being. So that's why I like to talk about the timeline view and we even give it a name, the patient timeline object and think about all of the different kinds of information modalities that you've collected along the way corresponding to some measurement of each event on the chronology. Yeah, this makes me really think about how going from data in a table in Excel and actually visualizing a timeline, uh, perhaps going from left to right with the data hanging off events over time. And this could offer additional insights, such as prior to one event, you could identify some warning signs in the data that a patient is deteriorating before anybody else notices. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's plenty, plenty more applications, but I think the crux is, is, is finding ways to make data meaningful to people. Now, that moves us on to some work that you've been doing around a project called the Green Button. Could you tell me a bit about that? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it, it ties in nicely to the timeline that you just brought up. So on our campus, you know, there was a study in 2010 where a physician uh, in our pediatric hospital had to make a better decision about a patient with systemic lupus uh, who they were not sure, you know, how much at risk of blood clots is that particular individual and should they be using anticoagulation or not. And they manually went through the charts of about 98 other patients in order to inform their decision. And what they were doing is essentially how many patients like this who had SLE, had pancreatitis, had hyperteinuria, and then had a blood clot later on. Like they were trying to construct that timeline and then trying to figure out off all the different timelines of these 98 patients that they had, to whom is my patient most similar to? And we said, all right, this is something a computer should be able to do a whole lot better than a human, you know, shuffling through the charts, either, you know, paper or electronic. And so the Green Button Project essentially is the idea that could we go through these patient timelines at the bedside using a computer, find the similar patients and answer the question in a, in a, in a short report, what happened to patients like mine? So that, that's how the project started. And we did 100 consultations at the bedside it, at Stanford. And uh, the URL for the academic part of the project is greenbutton.stanford.edu. And after the project was done, of course, yeah, being academics, we wrote a paper and all that fun stuff. But then our leaders, uh, Dean Miner and our CEO, David Enwissel, posed the question, how are we going to scale this? How do we make this available to others? And so we took all of the software and and, and the the computational infrastructure we'd built and spun out a company called Atropos Health, uh, which essentially offers this as a service to any health system uh, worldwide. Wow, what a fascinating journey and and sort of application of technology. And I wonder what were the sort of outcomes for those patients and um, when they were able to utilize, uh, the clinicians were able to utilize this tool. And, and second of all, how was that kind of information presented such that clinicians could make an informed decision? So we actually resorted to the, a very time-honored and well-understood setup 
of offering this as a second opinion and providing it in written form. And so once we receive the question about the patient, we actually have a little conversation with the requesting physician and understand you know, what's the real question behind the question, which helps us define the criteria by which to identify similar patients and so on. And then the report all has a large section of all the stats that was done and so on. But in the end, on the front page, here's your question. Here's our definition of the cohort of similar patients. And then the conclusion, the interpretation, as in after looking at all the data, this is our answer to your question and signed by a physician. So just like when you get an MRI or a CT scan or an X-ray, you get the interpretation of the radiologist or for histopathology, you get the interpretation of the pathologist. You get an interpretation from the data scientist doctor, from the informatics doctor. And so what, what ended up happening for these sorts of patients? Did, were we able to sort of measure clinical outcomes or, or processes that resulted in people getting better and those kinds of things? So now, at least in the research phase of the 100 questions uh, that we had, uh, we had received, uh, we changed the course of care about 10 or 12 times, which is about the same rate at which second opinions change the course of uh, treatment, like human second opinions. And it's very hard to prove that it was for the better. But if I give you an example, there was a patient, uh, a, a pediatric patient, again, with mononeuritis multiplex. And uh, the question was what to do. And so the plan was to do some spinal taps and a few other invasive tests uh, to figure out a course of action. But looking at about 183 or so similar patients, what found was that the majority of them responded very well to a, do- a trial of steroids. So the treating team said, the child's not in any immediate danger, so let's hold off on you know poking a hole in their spine and so on, and just try a trial of steroids. And three days later, kid's fine, went home, no complications as we know of at least, and this was two years ago. So it's hard to say that doing the spinal tap would have been better, <laughs> uh, so in hindsight, we can say that that was definitely beneficial. Now, since then, since the academic project, uh, there have been in, in the Atropos phase, and now they've done over a thousand consultations, there is some quantitative information. So, for example, one of the things that our hospitalist team found is that we had been using a drug rifaximine on patients with hepatic failure because there was a small study out there that said it reduces length of stay. And we said, well in the patients that we have chosen to treat with rifaximine and in all the other similar patients that we have not, is there a difference in the length of stay? And turns out there wasn't. So they chose to take change protocol and say, we're no longer going to be using this drug uh, in such situations because it's an expensive drug and has no benefit in, the, in, the, in that context. That sounds like a really fascinating tool because you are more effectively surfacing real patients, real clinical information that, that already exists. But for anyone who's used clinical records, uh, they know that they're a mess, that the user experience is often terrible. Um, the standardization of medical data is, is really difficult. And so clinicians are often searching haphazardly. Mm-hmm. So this provides not only the surfacing of the information, but the analysis and adding that second opinion to support that clinician. Uh, that sounds like a a really valuable tool. So what happens in cases where perhaps the incidence of a disease is very low or the population that you're looking for is less represented in your data? And adding to that, how do you convey the degree of confidence you have in the information that you're sharing? 
Yeah, so I have two ways of answering that question. One is that, of course, when you're doing the math, you can always know when your error bars are so large that you should keep your mouth shut. <laughs> and then in, uh, in, I think, 13 or so of the cases that we received, we basically said, look, given the criteria you're defining and given the data that we have, there just isn't enough cohort size to answer your question. That definitely happens. But the other way to answer the question is that often the evidence or the size of patient population they would have relied on in the absence of just the 10 folks or 15 patients we found would have been like one or zero. So in cases where you can't compute a proper statistical outcome with some certainty, it's still helpful to do a descriptive summary of what happened to the 10 people or the 20 people that you found. Because the, the competitor to that is zero. <laughs> I can see how it's quite difficult where that counterfactual often isn't being weighed up against. That is, the, the doctor was already going to make a decision, uh, you know, the best decision that they could with the limited information that they had at hand, and that this offers that fuller context of, of similar patients, of course, with some caveats, and that these sorts of tools need to have the appropriate governance and oversight, auditing, uh, patients are informed of their use, those kinds of things. Now, I'd love for us to move on to the topic of artificial intelligence. Now, those words mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I wondered, what does AI mean to you? So I try not to get too hung up on defining artificial intelligence. The way I would encourage people to think about it is you have data, this patient timeline that we're talking about. There is some computation you can do to detect a pattern, which may be reusable. And that computation typically is referred to as building a model. And then that model, that resulting pattern, this generalizable pattern that you've identified, helps you do two things. It helps you decide whether to act. And that usually is some sort of a risk estimation. What is the chance the person has some diagnosis? What is the chance that they're going to have something in the future? And so those are decisions of whether to act. And then the second one is decisions of how to act. And those can be informed by what was the outcome of the decisions you made in the past? Or they can be out informed by first principles, saying we have this receptor, this drug blocks this receptor, this cancer is driven by this receptor, therefore let us use this drug. And AI can be used at many steps in this process. But typically, it will have data going in as inputs. It will have a formula learned using some algorithm on that data set that given a new patient's data, it outputs a number that helps you make a decision of whether to act or how to act. And today we're going gaga over deep neural networks and chat GPT and large language models and tomorrow it'll be something else. Um, there was a time when medicine was in love with Bayesian networks. And before that, you know, there was Petri nets. And before that, there were rule-based logic systems. But the purpose remains the same, which is we want to use as much information, as much data as we can to decide whether to act and how to act. Just to pick up on that comment around how a particular formula is used, my simplistic way of thinking about these tools is that they are a set of rules used to sort information much like a post office. So when you turn up to the post office with your letter, the first bit of sorting is they might weigh the letter. The next bit of sorting is decide whether it's international or 
domestic letter. The next bit will be uh, rural versus urban, and so on and so on and so on. Until it gets to the final sorting bit, and it then sits in the outbox tray to be picked up by the truck and, and taken, hopefully, to the right letterbox. Now, if it doesn't work, that letter uh, comes back, and, and hopefully that information now updates the post office. So perhaps the rural versus urban sorting uh, sets of rules or filter uh, need a bit of an update. They get weighted or, or biased a particular way. And then when you run that information through again and it gets to the right place, you know that you've fixed up um, that particular part of the sorting. Now, obviously it's vastly more complicated than this. Uh, they use a lot more uh, filters and, and parameters and use some very clever statistics, but uh, that's, that's my kind of thinking. How does that sound to you? Well, I think you just gave an excellent description of reinforcement learning. I, I'm glad that that kind of lands. So what is it about ChatGPT which has been different from what we were doing before? So ChatGPT is a web application that runs with one or of two language models as its engines inside, uh, GPT 3.5 or GPT 4. There's about 130 or 150 large language models already out there. And that's a piece of information a lot of people find surprising that ChatGPT is like one model of a car. Uh, there are other cars and there's definitely lots of different engines that are around. What I'm saying is not specific about ChatGPT, but about these large language models in general. The manner in which they're different from the prior ways of doing, life, uh, of doing things is, is two main ways. One is that they can be trained without much human supervision. So there's something called self-supervision, where in the case of language, you say, hey, computer, here's, a, here's Wikipedia, just learn you know, what word comes after what other word, and your context window is 100 words. So just go in a sliding window of 100 words, every time learning the probability of what comes next, given those 100 words. It's a very simplified cartoon example, but that's basically what's happening. Learn to predict the next word, the next sentence, the next paragraph. That idea is called self-supervision because you don't have to sit and say that is the next word. It is obvious from the data itself. It's an inherent property of the data. So a lot of these large language models, if, and if we generalize further foundation models, have the ability to learn from data using its intrinsic properties, such as what comes next. Uh, that wasn't the case for a lot of other AI where you would have to give it examples of what's good and what's bad. The second big thing that about these, these models is that even though you trained them for something silly, like predict the next word, new capabilities emerge. As in, now they can answer questions, which is something they were never trained for. And so those are the two, I would say, salient properties that make this genre of AI quite different from what we have seen in the past. Part of that is this idea of using a transformer where basically the there is more sort of context and weight on words and their relationship to other words and that you can also run these systems in parallel so you can be a lot more i guess efficient or faster at, at landing on an appropriate probability for the next word that it thinks it needs to to spit out yeah so that you could think of that as that's the how the predicting the next word is, is, is the what. And uh, 
you know, Transformers came around in 2018, which is when the first paper on that uh, was released. And to Google's credit, they put it open source. Uh, you know, contrary to popular belief, OpenAI did not invent Transformers. <laughs> but yes, so that is the how. And yeah, I'm sure people are innovating on other more efficient ways. Uh, and typically that whole activity goes under the, what, are the, what is the right neural architecture of learning these things, these probabilities fast? A lot is going on in the sort of public sphere around these sorts of tools. And there's been quite a lot of attention around getting these large language models to sit, you know, standardized tests, medical exams, legal exams. What do you sort of see as being shown here? And, you know, what do you think we should be more guarded about in terms of their general application in healthcare? Yep. So I'll use an analogy because uh, this comes up quite often. And I think uh, we've kind of gone a little bit head over heels over these things. So here's the analogy. Uh, let's talk about driving. We have a human who goes to the DMV in the US or the appropriate agency and takes a test, a written test, a multiple choice test. Then we have a vehicle, a car, which goes to the appropriate government agency, the National Transportation Safety Board, and they do crash testing and rollover testing and so on. And then we put the two together and then we do a driving test to see if they can drive safely. We don't send the car to the DMV to take the multiple choice test and certify it for self-driving. But that is the exact absurdity we are allowing when we take GPT, have it take the USMLE, and say, now it's okay to be a doctor for it. I, I wanted to, to touch on, you had done some work looking at ChatGPT providing some clinicians information and how they could use it, you know, in, in their day to day. What did you find out? So it was a fascinating study, you know, going back to our analogy of driving, we said, let's put the human, the doctor, and the car, in this case, GPT, together and let them have a driving test, right? And so we had a couple of questions that had come up as part of actually the Green Button project that we talked about, where we had answered them using data, using some statistical analysis. So we had what we thought was a good answer or a reference answer, you know, maybe not the truth, but a reference answer. And so we submitted those exact same questions to GPT 3.5 and 4, got the answers back, and had 12 clinicians look at the answers and say, were they safe? By and large, they were safe, so nice and good, knock on wood. And then the second thing we asked is that, in your opinion, does the answer agree with the previous reference answer? Does it disagree? or you can't tell. And the punchline was that about for half of the questions, the 12 clinicians couldn't agree whether this thing agreed, disagreed, or couldn't tell. <laughs> and so, so it's like, all right, let's not even worry about whether the agreement, what the agreement rate was. But if half the time you get a response back that 12 certified clinicians cannot tell and agree on that it's matching what you previously knew or not, we got a problem there. <laughs> and I think what you're highlighting is with these tools, in some sense, they're going to make us ask some really pointed questions of how we've worked before. Perhaps they won't necessarily just yet provide us with all of the answers, but if we have that much variability within clinical experts, how much variability do we have across the entire sector? And if we have that variability, what are we going to do about it? And perhaps mm -hmm. these tools can can facilitate some of that that improvement. But 
but perhaps it asks us how do we uh, do exams? How do we assess competence? How do we ensure quality and safety? And perhaps some of these tools are, are rather than necessarily taking the role of, of a doctor just yet, but are facilitating the improvement or augmentation of clinicians such that they can mm-hmm. be uh, practicing at the, at the top of their, their license and their game. Mm-hmm. Or the, the flip side of it, which is, I don't understand why the world is so enamored with using GPT to replace what a doctor does, like answering this bedside question or, you know, trying to take the USMLE exam or offering a diagnosis or what have you. But there are things that a doctor cannot do or doesn't have the time to do or the mental inclination to do. Uh, So, for example, explaining discharge instructions in the language of their choice of the patient and at the reading level they desire. You know, brilliant use case. Uh, There's this nice article uh, online about an emergency medicine doctor who was trying to explain what had happened to to an elderly lady to the family and was having trouble sort of being able to translate all the medical stuff going on. And instead of that clinician spending 30 minutes or an hour trying to phrase things in a way that this family understands, have GPT do it. They can ask as many questions as they want, relaxed conversation, the clinician ED doc can go take care of the next patient in line. So we should be thinking about what is the portion of work that can be sort of cut off or carved out and given to these things, as opposed to setting up a competition and a horse race between the doctor and and GPTs. I also think in some sense there there is also an opportunity cost with some of these types of tools there you know there is a price to be paid if you're going to implement them uh, and maintain them and and I sometimes worry that we are looking to outsource the the very essence of the most important parts of healthcare away from what people um first of all the the clinicians find most meaningful and the patients find most meaningful I wonder if we could touch on some work that you've been doing around looking at an infrastructure in health systems such that we can facilitate the appropriate safeguards to to utilize these types of tools. I'm, I'm thinking of your fair, useful, reliable models um, framework. So, you know, a- any model can only be used in a healthcare system if we're able to verify its benefits and be able to deploy it in a sustainable manner. And one of the things that we're thinking of is you know, the typical sort of workflow of things is let's deploy something and then we'll monitor over time like a RCT or what have you, did it help or not? And I was like, that's too expensive because at the end of the day, what if it didn't work? So why can't we flip the paradigm and say, let's assume the model is good. And based on that, can we run a little simulation using our own patient mix to say, if we were doing this routinely, given the rate at which we would follow up with people and how much it costs and how often it succeeds and all of that. All of those are assumptions and we can vary them to some extent. Say, if we did all of that, would it would we make a difference? And so the intuition behind that is that, you know, economists have figured out very nice ways of calculating net benefit. What we want is how much of that is achievable given our work capacity constraints. And we only want to advance things further where the benefit is achievable. How do you see this impact across healthcare systems in terms of the variable uh, resourcing, technical capability and capacity for hospitals, healthcare providers, insurers, you name it, to adequately assess these types of tools? So I think now there's 
reasonable appreciation. In fact, there's even a paper out with my favorite word in the title about a condition called pilotitis, which is where you end up doing a ton of pilots that don't go anywhere. <laughs> and I, you know, most people who worked in health IT in some form or fashion are familiar with this, with this disease, uh, pilotitis. And the bigger the institution, the, the more extreme the, the severity of pilotitis. And so I think there's increasing realization that this happens. And by doing these kinds of assessments, the fair, usefulness, reliable model assessments up front, I think we can prevent pilotitis. And the, the, the thing a lot of the senior leadership is sort of recognizing is that, I mean, healthcare is a low margin business, you know, depending on which country and where you look, you'll get a number between one to 5%. Uh, so you don't have the luxury of just adding new technology and holding cost constant. And we're already worried about rising costs. So we have to do the diligence upfront to figure out, are these things gonna work? If they seem like they're gonna work, can we achieve the presumed benefit given our work capacity? Or how are we going to change our capacity in order to achieve that benefit? Like all of that has to happen up front before a pilot begins. And I think that is sort of uh, one of the, the, the th themes that's emerging at multiple places that instead of just doing a pilot and then asking, did it work? Let's make a follow through plan and set the criteria for success and run a simulation to see, is there any hope of meeting that? If not, let's not do the pilot. It's going to be a really fascinating time. I, I was at a conference recently talking, uh, listening to a talk about someone using AI on, on to support clinicians to write their notes more efficiently. And the talk before was about clinician burnout. And then this talk was about AI improving efficiency and, and improving that burnout as well. But what they did mention at the end was that with that efficiency that they had gained, they had now slotted in two to five more patients for that clinician to see over the day. And so what it kind of highlighted to me is that there is organizational process and structure, you know, business models, uh, all of these additional things that will be impacted by um, disruptive technologies. And if we aren't thoughtful about what we really want our health system to do and to, to deliver, uh, we may create um, further harms mm -hmm. by by outsourcing um, things that matter a lot to us to mm -hmm. technology. Absolutely, absolutely. So you know, uh, as we sort of come towards then, I would want to leave people with this with the with the thought that think about the difference between an efficiency gain and a productivity gain. And I'll, I'll give a ridiculous example just so that it sticks. In my dad's generation, people wore their stethoscopes in a way that, you know, you could put it in your ear and then it's just around your neck. The, the two prongs are just hanging around your neck. And then when I trained, we would drape it around the neck like a scarf. And so someone did a study that, you know, how many seconds does it take to unscarf your stethoscope and put it into your ear and multiply that by the number of clinicians and how many times a day they do that? And then how much of clinician time is spent on that? I came up with a large number, you know, like $50 million spent because of this fashion of wearing it like a scarf and hypothesizing that, you know what, if we stop doing that, you know, maybe it would save $50 million. Now that's like the classic fallacy that you might change this as a, and make people wear the stethoscope the old fashioned way. And now you get this efficiency of saving five seconds, you know, every time, but that efficiency cannot be harvested. There's nothing you can do with that efficiency. There is no accompanying productivity gain with that efficiency. 
If you save 15 seconds of a million doctors over the whole country, that doesn't mean you can see X many more patients at the end of the day. <laughs> and so and this is a cartoon example, but it, it sort of hits home the point that a lot of these analyses, you know, readmissions reductions, length of stay reductions, like they will show you percentage efficiency gains. But don't ask the hard question, can that efficiency gain be translated into a productivity gain? Well, that is a great point to leave us on. All of us to go away and think about that. Uh, Dr. Nigam Shah, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real pleasure. Absolutely, and thanks for doing this. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. If you want to go deeper about any of these topics or join the discussion, visit our website, clinicalchangemakers.com. Now, one small ask. This is a brand new podcast. So if you enjoyed our work, please rate us and share it with your friends and colleagues. Until next time. Take care.